Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction's official podcast. I'm your host today, Razia Iqbal. And I'll be talking to Craig Brown about being shortlisted for the Winner of Winners Award, held to celebrate 25 years of the Bailey Gifford Prize. The Winner of Winners pits the previous 24 recipients of the prize against each other. It is, I suppose you could describe it as a literary battle to the death. The shortlist has been chosen by an illustrious panel of judges chaired by Jason Cowley and featuring Shahida Bari. Sarah Churchwell and Francis Wilson. Craig Brown's book, 1234, The Beatles in Time, won the prize really not that long ago, 2020, being praised for its innovative approach to documenting one of the most popular bands in the world. Craig, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, let's go back to 2020. You won the prize in the pandemic year, which uh, was really not that long ago, uh, and it feels like quite some time ago, given how quickly we've gone back to normal. If you were writing it again, I wonder if there's anything you'd do differently. I mean, was it was it informed by what was happening at the time? Presumably, you'd already finished writing it by 20, 2019, 2020. Yeah, I mean, it came out just as lockdown started, the very week. And so um, there was a fear at that time, well, apart from all the other fears, which are larger, uh, because bookshops were closing, that would be the end of all books published then. But in a sort of strange way, I think it, uh, it might have helped the book because uh, in, it turned out that because people had more time on their hands and they were locked indoors, uh, there were more books bought and read. And also I think people were looking back, uh, you know, to happier times and a time of kind of freedom, which is the time that the Beatles represented. So I, I think in a funny way, it benefited from lockdown. And and there is also, it's just one of the funniest books I've read in quite some time. I mean, well, I think it's that as well, isn't it? It must be that it was just deeply entertaining and it, and it allowed you to immerse yourself, as you say, in that period when everything was free. Yeah, and it is. I mean, I'm I'm by sort of profession a humorist, by inclination a humorist, uh, and so I suppose I'd have felt I was short, sort of shortchanging people if I wasn't doing jokes. But of course, within first with the Beatles, you get this extraordinary kind of Cinderella uh, story of these four people, completely unknown working class boys from Liverpool, becoming the almost the four best known people in the world in the space of a few years. Um, uh, and then what that does to them and their characters, and you, you have all the music and you have all the people around them. But the, all, with the people around them, there is a lot of uh, humour because obviously they attracted. They were all, you know, in their twenties, and they attracted all kinds of uh, eccentric, uh, peculiar, devious uh, hangers-on. Uh, and so that's that's funny. Just the the way of the world is funny. The way and the hangers-on included. Prime ministers and presidents and things, you know, everyone <laughs> wanted a bit of, of the Beatles sort of glory. Yeah, uh, and I mean, so I think star, there is a lot of humour in the Beatles, yeah. The, the the stardust that everyone craved was really quite extraordinary. I mean, I, I wonder whether when you first started thinking about writing this book, you there was any trepidation because, you know, that 
these individual personalities that make up the Fab Four, I mean, they have this extraordinary hold on on our cultural consciousness, even though the band dissolved in, in 1970 and, and there is so much been written about them and there still is this hold, as I say. Did you think, I need to find something new to say and a different way of saying it? Or did you think, hmm, what am I taking on? Um, well, yeah, but both of, uh, of those things, because I think there have been about 2,000 books written about uh, the Beatles. And so you think... And so there's virtually nothing more to be found out about the Beatles. Uh, uh, I mean, there have been very sort of magisterial, huge works. By, um, Mark Lewison uh, has done one, which I think he's on about page 2,000. It's as in the first volume. It, it, the long version is 2,000 <laughs> pages. And it only takes him up to 1962, I think, something like that. So, And it's going to be three volumes. So... And he, he, I mean, it's, it's an amazing work in a way. He details virtually every minute of their lives and not just their lives, but, you know, George Harrison's older brother's life and things. That, um, and so there are these encyclopedic works and a lot of very, very good books. And even by, you know, ghostwritten books by John Lennon's best friend, Pete Shotton, or Cynthia Lennon has written uh, or had uh, wrote um, two autobiographies. Uh, uh, and... To me, they're all fascinating. There's hardly a dud one among them, and so I did. I I did think. I mean, it, you know, it, when you're writing, it's sort of it's how it depends on your mood that day. Some days I thought, you know, what have I got to write? I mean, what what's left for me? What how can I add anything to this uh, extraordinary story? And then on other days, if I was feeling optimistic, I'd think, oh, well, actually, all these other books have just given me the license to do exactly what I want. Because if you want the basic Beatles story, um, then you can kind of look elsewhere. But I can go down all these strange um, paths. I can do a bit of sort of travelogue and uh, I can do a bit of autobiography and I can, I can choose to focus on very sort of apparently minor figures. I mean, for instance, there was a man called Jimmy Nichol who, uh, when Ringo Starr uh, was suddenly taken ill, had to go to hospital, uh, he uh, deputised for Ringo at the height of the Beatles' fame. Uh, this was on their Australian tour. That's right. And he went to Australia, and so he was a Beatle for about 10 days. Uh, I think he went to Scandinavia before that. And, uh, and they, you know, he was dressed as a Beatle. It was all completely overnight. He was just contacted one day, and they were going to Australia the next day, and they said, you can be a Beatle. <laughs> uh, he was a session musician uh, with Georgie fame, and they gave him Beatle haircut, fitted him out with a Beatle suit, and he was uh, he was on all their press conferences. You know, he was a Beatle effectively for all that time. These amazing, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets from the airport in Sydney and Melbourne and places. Um, and then the effect, you know, I was interested in the effect of him after that because, you know, in a way it's likely that his life would have been a lot happier had he never experienced those those 10 minutes, uh, 10 days of uh, glory. And there were other people who were sort of swept aside by the Beatles, not any fault of the Beatles, but the old guard I was interested in, uh, sort of Frank Sinatra, Noel Coward, that kind of thing, who, who were very jealous, uh, to some extent Elvis Presley, uh, jealous of the Beatles' uh, success. So I was very interested in their effect on other 
on the rest of the world, on other people, on um, politicians, on uh, on everyone. Um, and and our other books hadn't really gone into those areas. Exactly. I mean, in in a way, that that choice and your curiosity about the the, the people around them and those who had been cast aside, if you like, you know, people like Pete Best and Helen Shapiro, p- people who were directly impacted by their involvement with, with the Beatles. Yes. Or book uh, unique. But it's also when you won in 2020, the judges praised it for its structure. T- talk us through what you were thinking about the structure. Well, in the most sort of banal way, it's just a way of leaving out the boring bits. <laughs> Uh, or not more straightforward, I should say, rather than banal. Um, in that anything that I didn't feel on top of or didn't interest me, for instance, the Beatles and their tax affairs, you know, they have, there's been a book written about that, but I'm not very good at economics and things. And though I can see it's sort of, you know, it's a valid area of Beatles studies, uh, it's not one that I had anything to add to, or even things like the Magical Mystery Tour, which is quite sort of. Uh, big thing in the Beatles' lives, this sort of semi-disastrous film they made for uh, Christmas one year. <laughs> I didn't really have anything to add to it, so I just didn't put it in. Um, and and so it's a sort of, it is a kind of collage of of uh, of pretty short chapters, uh, not necessarily chronological, largely chronological. And it might suddenly have an essay on their hair. Or on the merchandising, or uh, of that that kind, or puns in the Beatles' words, things which interest me, and or even memories of myself, you know, getting uh, Abbey Road through the post at my boarding school, and uh, the effect of the Beatles' lyrics on me, and that like, and so it's a sort of little um, sort of smorgasbord of of uh, of thoughts about the Beatles and interesting uh, details about the Beatles, but I hope it, it doesn't then add up, uh, I, I hope it adds up to more than just a sort of weirdo collection of, of stuff. And I, I hope it has a kind of uh, coherence. I certainly try to make each chapter sort of flow into the, one chapter flow into the next, even though there didn't seem to be anything um, very sort of uh, tangential to, to link Oh, no, it definitely has a cohesion. I, I, I just, I, I found myself wanting to go backwards and forwards. I mean, the book is called, you know, one, two, three, four, the Beatles in, in time. And I, I, I really felt like I was being taken backwards and forwards in, in such an engaging way. So thank you for that. Really. Why yes, because we... actually, the, in the, sorry to interrupt, but, but actually, the whole, the, the idea of the Beatles in time, I was, that was another thing that I wanted to do. I, I wanted to see them. Because I mean, obviously, in time is a sort of semi-pun because obviously they're playing in time, but they're they're within history. And I was it was fifty when the book came out. It was uh, April or whatever year it was, but it was uh, well the twenty twenty, and and that was exactly fifty years since the Beatles had broken up. And then it so if you go back from fifty years from the time that they met, which is nineteen fifty seven, you're into nineteen oh seven, and you suddenly see that they are part of. Uh, of history um and they're they're uh, you know in a way that you know george formby or <laughs> people people were or <laughs> gilbert and sullivan or you know uh they're part of some kind of musical heritage now and that they've 
they've passed this this test of 50 years you know the my children uh who are both in their 30s they know all the Beatles songs I haven't you know I haven't really sort of pushed them on my children and their generation knows all these songs in a way that I don't know you know the songs of Joe Loss or or Gracie Fields or someone who you know people that uh, entertain my parents um, and yet everyone at the time thought every time the Beatles were, were on tour and they had a press conference everyone would say when's the bubble going to burst yeah and it never did burst it, it, it is interesting I mean I, I wonder if you share the view of people like Ian Leslie and Danny Barker who say that the Beatles are still underrated <laughs> well, well <laughs> it's a funny idea uh, because it, you know it's hard to think of anyone rated more, but but the the interesting um, thing about well one of many interesting things about the Beatles is that their their songs are so full of kind of light and shade, uh, often within the same song and certainly in the same album. You know if you think especially something like the Double White or Abbey Road or you know even Sergeant Pepper, yeah, uh, you just get all these different moods and atmospheres. And ways of looking at the world, and therefore characters were so different that I think you could. I mean, I can see what they mean. They're obviously kind of joking, but but within each song, there is something still to be discovered. I think they they, they are the sort of gift that goes on giving. And what did you make of Peter Jackson's uh, mega documentary Get Back? I mean, did did you what what did you think of it? <laughs> well, I I mean, I thought it was very. It was very interesting in that I can't think of any other documentary. You know, we've all seen hundreds of uh, documentaries, but um, but documentaries are usually with people. You know, they're very uh, edited because they have to be squeezed into an hour and a half or two hours maximum, uh, and you don't get. And everyone is sort of doing their best and trying hardest, and you're cutting to the most interesting thing they say or the best song they're playing. But with this, because it was such a long, uh, a long documentary, and it was the Beatles in a way at their sort of most desultory. You know, they weren't getting on particularly well, and so, uh, so there was lots of hanging around, waiting for coffee to come, waiting for someone else to come. You know, uh, sort of doodling with chords. And I thought it was the only documentary I've seen uh, because of that, uh, which was like real life. You know, you sort of real life is is kind of uh, tawdry, slightly dull, and uh, hanging around for things. Uh, and you actually saw that on film. And so from that, from a completely non-musical point of view, I thought that was fascinating. And I think people were rather fascinated by this this sort of the interestingness in, in dullness, um, though that's obviously a sort of paradoxical thing to say. But also there were these kind of... Uh, golden moments which for some reason hadn't been in the original uh, much shorter documentary let it be um, of uh, things like you know Paul you could see Paul composing get back you could you could see from the very first you know notes him just working it out and it, it kind of uh, blossoming like some amazing uh, flower and so there were these within uh, the the fascinating dullness. There were also moments of complete fascination without any dullness. It, it, isn't it interesting also in the film that, that these men seem in so many ways 
very contemporary. I mean, it, their attitudes, their demeanor, the way yeah, yeah. they're presented in the film would not seem out of a uh, seem out of place today. I mean, did you feel when you were writing the book that that they they felt that way to you? I'm not, I was actually for some reason I was thinking uh, last night that there is something extraordinary about those ten years, you know, nineteen sixty to nineteen seventy. Uh, which, unlike any other ten years in the twentieth century or of this century so far, in in the uh, the amount of change that there was, that that if you look at a film of nineteen sixty, uh, the world is so different ten years later in nineteen seventy, uh, and and yet you know it's not really that different, uh, you know, from now now backwards to 2013 or backwards 10 years from that. And so something um, something bizarre did happen and, and the world sort of, things became modern and then stayed modern. And I think the Beatles were at the, the front of that. I mean, in the people like Harold Wilson, you know, still look rather old fashioned or Harold Macmillan or, you know, uh, the other contemporaries in other fields still look old fashioned. Uh, uh, at the, at the time of whenever it was, 69, I think, uh, that it was uh, recorded. But the Beatles uh, seem sort of permanently young in that way. You, you begin and end the book with, uh, with Brian Epstein. Just, just talk us through your, your thoughts about him and, and what, what drew you to him to kind of bookend the book in the way that you do. Yes, well, I, I, mean, uh, I, I was worried that the, you know, the book would, because it has all these different chapters going back and forth and, uh, you know, seeing them from different prisms. So I didn't want it to be uh, bitty. So, um, and I always like a kind of symmetry in a book. So the book both begins and ends with uh, Brian Epstein going down the steps of the cavern. Brian Epstein was this um, uh, part of a, a, a kind of prominent Liverpool family who had a department store and he was in charge of the record uh, section. His own interests were in classical music, but he was a sort of uh, entrepreneur by nature. And he'd heard that there was this group at the, in the cavern. And so he, he goes down the 17 steps of the cavern to, to, um, to find out about them. And then he's kind of appalled by what he sees because it's just not his kind of music. But he recognizes uh, the the key thing I think in in all creative activity, which is energy. He I, I think that's what he saw. He recognized there was this extraordinary energy on stage. Uh, and in going down those steps, uh, it was in some ways, though it was a sort of the Beatles would be coming up those steps to heaven. He was descending them into in, into a kind of personal hell in that um, the Beatles, for all their kind of uh, youth and their wildness and the mistakes they made, they all came out at the end of it. They were all alive. They were all kind of thriving in their various ways. They'd gone through drugs. They'd gone through lots and lots of things. Uh, but they were survivors. And Brian Epstein, who's, who to me aged whatever I was at the time, you know, 10 or something, he was seemed like the the grown up. He was always in a tie. He had short hair. He was the organised one. But in fact, he was taking far more drugs 
than them. Uh, he was being blackmailed. Uh, he was uh, living in fear because he was in a homosexual at a time when it was illegal. Uh, he was sort of all over the place, and I was just interested. I was particularly interested in him, just as a sort of counterpoint uh, to the Beatles. Uh, and so I, I both begin and end with him. And then in the uh, the end chapter, I was trying to. I was always trying to work out what to do with about this pivotal figure in the Beatles' lives. And I thought, well, it would be very interesting to write it. Uh, that long chapter um, backwards. So it starts uh, with his death uh, and and then moves backwards to the time when he goes uh, down those steps of the cabin. And I, I sort of think, and I, uh, people have said to me that it's very moving. I mean, it's uh, you were uh, kind of saying that the, uh, you know, a lot of the rest of the book was funny. Uh, but I... I I think it is a very moving story, and I think, and I, I hope I, I showed that in the way that I dealt with it. Oh, you definitely did. I mean, there's real poignancy in the book in other places too. You know, the fact that you um, alight on, you know, the 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 bond between John and and Paul connected obviously not just by the music but the fact that they both lost their their mothers and, yeah. and, and what that does to them I mean there is that there is real poignancy in in lots of uh parts of the the, the book I mean I I also the the issue of um Epstein's homosexuality takes up um uh, this one particular chapter and 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 it's just you know you you painstakingly unpack the different versions of Paul McCartney's 21st birthday when there is this altercation between John Lennon and uh, the MC of the cavern, uh, Bob Wooler. And and as I was reading it, I was just thinking, oh, wow, there are all these versions and it's all so interesting. And then you end, you end that chapter by saying something that's really quite hilarious. There is no better illustration of the random subjective nature of history. I mean, it just really, really made me laugh. (laughs) I think it's true because you think, well, this is all within our lifetimes, you know, that this incident happened and people were investigating it almost immediately after it happened and yet no one can work out exactly what happened. And you think, well, what about, you know, um, King Henry VIII or if you're writing about, you know, uh, or Oliver Cromwell, if you're writing about all the, you know, Tutankhamun, um, that that everything, uh, that all history... I, it's an absurd thing to say, but to some extent, all history is a fraud because how do you know all these things? How can you how can you say this detail is is definitely right? I mean, even if it's someone's diaries, you know, there's a great thing with historians. Oh well, you know, it's an actual written source, and but you know, people make things up in their diaries. People make things up in uh, letters. People uh, get misapprehensions about that about even about themselves um and so i think you know i think it is all biographies uh are interesting and all biographies are dealing uh in facts uh, and yet you know not obviously a, uh any biographer with integrity is trying to get to the truth but also any biographer with integrity is right realizing that the tr- truth is almost impossible uh to get to 
Let's talk about Ringo Starr because he really is famously the Beatle who is most often ignored. And then you describe him as a sort of Horatio figure, Dr. Watson figure, yep. plodding, selfless and, and reliable. I mean, what, what do you think he, he brought to the band? Well, I mean, the, the funny thing about Ringo uh, is that at the time the Beatles managed to get him, they rather ruthlessly got rid of uh, Pete Best. And Ringo that time was in a was doing much better than the Beatles. He was in another band. And so they were very, very pleased to have got him. Um, and it's only, you know, then they became famous and you realize, especially John and Paul, great kind of geniuses. And so Ringo then does look rather the Dr. Watson figure, which of course he was. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, uh, drummers say that um, uh, that uh, he he did have a though it seems a straightforward way of drumming. Uh, uh, he he get he could give that if they were in the if they were composing a song or in the studio and they were getting slightly stuck in a song, he'd give it a slightly different beat. And then uh, the the uh, the Beatles engineer Jeff Emmerich pointed this out. He'd do something slightly different with the drumming, and that would spur them into their own creative. Uh, thought so I think he was uh, creatively at least helpful to them um, and he also had a sort of yeah there was something very nice and uh, about his down-to-earthness which I which probably did help them you know when they were going into the sort of uh, Maharishi area uh, you know he he was a very much one who kept his his feet uh, solidly on the ground there's also I should say there's something uh, kind of romantic about his story in that uh, he was by far the poorest. He was, was one parent family uh, that lived in the uh, small house in the poorest areas of uh, Liverpool and very nearly didn't survive his childhood. He was in the hospital for uh, o over a year um, and, and could have died, uh, had virtually no education. Um, and so his is an heroic uh, story as much as uh, the other three, and, and to some extent more because he he had such a um, a low place to come from. Uh, and so I mean I find all, all the the stories about the Beatles moving all all, all their individual life stories, but uh, but he's in a way uh, more moving than the others. And and collectively, you, you also look so brilliantly at the the idea of these uh, these young men and so many other pop stars who embody rebellion, who who then eventually get to the stage where they're part of a heritage industry, which is so amusing. Yes, I mean um, <laughs> everything. George Melly, he was a brilliant singer, but he was also a brilliant writer. He wrote this book uh, called Revolution into Style. Uh, which I think is is very much the way that popular culture works. You you start as uh, as revolution and then you become style. I mean, most obvious or the one that springs to mind is you know, Johnny Rotten ending up um, advertising butter on television. <laughs> it, it sort of, uh, and that happens, you know. Tommy Steele was before that. Cliff Richard was seen as a great kind of you know. Uh, rebel before the the Beatles and it just it just it's inevitable it it just happens or you know uh, Iggy Pop or any of them you can't avoid it you become 
you become famous and you then you slightly reset what the establishment is and therefore you're necessarily part of the establishment. It, it, it is so interesting. I mean, I, you talked about your children knowing, you know, in their 30s now, they know the Beatles songs and they were never thrust um, upon them. I mean, do you imagine that, that people will still be listening and, and indeed writing books about the Beatles in another 50 years' time? I, I certainly think they'd be uh, listening because they are just so much of the culture. And I don't think you could point to any, anything in the past which is so much of the culture, which has then... Uh, vanished uh so they're they're up there with sort of uh gershwin or you know these uh or, or more than i mean um i'm talking from Aldborough at the moment where benjamin Britten is obviously the big figure but you know uh, in that those days they were vague contemporaries uh Britten was seen as the great highbrow composer but i i think uh i think you wouldn't find a, a modern classical uh, composer or player uh, who who didn't rate the Beatles as highly as um, as Benjamin uh, Britten. Um, th they just they are just part of our furniture now, uh, and also people are still recording their songs um, in different ways. So even if which they won't because they they had you know especially their harmonies are very beautiful, but but just if they were just composers. Uh, uh, that they would last. Craig, you, you won this uh, award in 2020. What does it feel like to be part of the, the winner of winners shortlist now? Well, obviously very nice. And it, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather be part of it than not part of it. But, <laughs> but I, did, I, did, <laughs> I did feel, like, oh, my God, it's all starting again because it is slightly sort of nerve-wracking because even though you think, oh, well, you know, obviously you say, well, I'm just a delighted to be part of uh, of the finalists, which of course I am. But also, you know, you then start thinking, oh, yeah, well, perhaps I could win, you know. And, um, <laughs> and, and so then you have to prepare yourself for disappointment. So um, it, it, in some ways, like, life is easier if you can just carry on writing your next book. Um, but, uh, but obviously, you know, it's, it's obviously uh, exciting. And, and, uh, and I, I'm, um, I'm actually reading... Barbara Demick's book about uh, uh, North Korea at the moment, and I've read um, The House of Pain. I mean, I'd, I'd read that uh, before, um, but I'm, I'm actually sort of planning to read all of them. Um, and, you know, the Demick books are amazing. And, it really and the House, is, House, yeah. And The House of Pain is an extraordinary book. You know, I just, I, I, I read that like I'd read a, Balzac novel it's you know it's an amazing family saga on top of all the other revelations and so uh you know obviously the empire of pain Patrick Rannan oh Rannan sorry Rannan. not house of pain house of pain is quite a nice name or something I think. <laughs> uh, um uh um yeah so uh, you know it, it's an amazing uh privilege to be up there with uh them and I've got I think no writer can you know obviously you sort of want to push your own book but I think no writer can really um rate themselves but you know the idea that these four uh intelligent judges have thought my book uh, could be up with them well that you know it, it's kind of reassuring in a way Craig Brown thank you so much for joining me today and the best of luck with the winner of winners award thanks very much
We'd also like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous support of this podcast. Now, to find out more about the Bailey Gifford Prize, you can visit the website or follow us on Twitter, if that's the kind of thing you do, at BG Prize. And if this episode has piqued your interest in the history of the prize, then you can find a 30-minute documentary on our website. The Winner of Winners Award will be announced on the 27th of April at an event held at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. And in the meantime, do join me again to hear me talk to another of the shortlisted authors about uh, the impact of winning the Bailey Gifford Prize in the first place and also on being part of this Winner of Winners shortlist. Thanks very much again, Craig. Bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.